Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is a great show, a show about hell. We did it in July, fittingly, when it's hot, but it's fitting now, too. Uh, we think you'll really enjoy it. I do want to take this opportunity also, because we're away this week, to remind you that we're having a big fifth anniversary party on September 30th at the new Infinity Hall in Hartford. You're invited. It costs a whopping $5 to attend, $1 for every year of our lives, uh, at least as a radio show. And you can find, about, uh, find out about that by going to wnpr.org slash events. Then the following night, October 1st, we're doing a forum on education at the Watkinson School. We've got a great panel for this. This is not going to be your typical education policy conversation. This is about real teaching. What does it mean to learn? What does it mean to teach? What does it mean not to care about anything, any of the politics or policies, just care about the faces looking back at you from those rows of seats? So that's at Watkinson School on October 1st. If you go to watkinson.org, you can find out more about it. You're invited to attend. It's part of the Freshly Squeezed series. So with all of that, uh, I welcome you back uh, into this show. In other words, welcome back into hell. Wow, I'm in hell. I didn't even believe hell existed, but there's Shia LaBeouf. So. Welcome to hell. Here's your registration packet. Here's your name tag. Your name tag is also your meal card. So don't take off your name tag for the next million years. The next orientation meeting is in 15 minutes. If you want to sign up for the Mel Gibson motivational speech, the list is there. It fills up fast. What is this? That's your key card. You're in room 21156. Second circle of hell, mainly lust people. Do I have a roommate? Of course you have a roommate. This is hell. You know, I guess I, I shouldn't complain about this, but I thought there would be fire. Is there no fire anywhere, or...? I'm not authorized to talk about that. Mr. Richter to registration. Mr. Richter to registration. What is it? Question about fire. We're having a problem with our supplier. There's no fire at this time. We may not be able to achieve our goal of 97% restoration of fire by our previously stated deadline, but we're engaged in a rigorous process of reviewing our response to this outage. In the meantime, we'd like to comp you a couple drinks in the Lance Armstrong Lounge. Take these. Thanks, I guess. You know, I thought there would be punishment. Am I not going to be jabbed with red-hot pokers by the minions of Beelzebub? Due to labor shortages, we're not able to offer those services at this time. But there is a webinar. That's the punishment? There is an all-day webinar for you tomorrow. Most people, after a while, take the red-hot pokers over the webinar if they're given a choice. Webinars do really f That's the kind of talk that got you sent here in the first place. Oh no, here he comes. Who? Who is that? That's Roger Goodell. He used to run the NFL. Mr. Goodell, I know you don't like your room, but you're in the ninth circle of hell. They're all bad rooms. But I don't like being near the elevator. Mr. Richter, could you come back down here, please? Today on the show, what the hell is going on with hell, theological and historical perspectives? And now he says the nuns were wrong about how it would make him go blind, so he probably won't go to hell for it either. Colin McEnroe. That's what I'm banking on. All right. Oh, hell sounds just really bad. Uh, <laughs> if, anything, if anything, that sounds worse than anything that they 
that St. Augusta never dreamed up. All right, so uh, before we sort of get into the meat of this, and I just want to say, this is a really fascinating topic. I mean, why wouldn't it be, of course? But it really, once you start thinking about hell, you realize that hell and all its gradations and different colorations, it's just completely interwoven with and hardwired into everything else about religion. In other words, you really can't talk about hell without talking about this particular religion's notion of authority, atonement, evangelism. It's all, I mean, it just, it, it helps. Hell just sort of, it all converges on hell, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But before we even get into all that, and before I introduce to you the Virgil who is walking us through this particular uh, hell, we're going to uh, just go out to the streets here. And so Allison Ehrenreich uh, and Britt Hill, two of our excellent interns, walked out to the streets and asked people about hell. Do you believe in hell? No. I believe when you're dead, you're dead. If it's there, why not? I'm not really a big religious person, but... I think there, there are certain levels of hell for certain people. Um, yeah, same thing. I think you go, you go somewhere and it's not up. I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not sure that I, you know, exactly what I believe in the afterlife, but I almost think it's more of a, a threat. Do you know a, a, something that, that we tell people? Sure, why not? I believe in heaven. There has to be a hell. It has to be an opposite. What do you think it would be like? Hell fire all over the place. I don't know, I guess what they read in church or something, like it's fire and the devil. Not good, I guess. <laughs> whatever your worst fears are, that's what I think hell is. I think hell is whatever you hate the most, whatever is your worst fear. All right, those are voices from the streets. Um, and it's a pretty good boilerplate uh, summing up of probably what people think about hell. Maybe not. I'm not the expert. I think it is true. Producers, uh, you either may back me up or undercut me on this. I think I routinely say when I'm introducing sort of a, an anchor guest, uh, and now the Virgil who's going to walk, walk us through this underworld. It's a little trope of mine. But this time I really mean it. Catherine Jim, Jin Lum is uh, the author of the forthcoming Damned Nation, Hell in America from the Revolution to Reconstruction. It was her article in Eon magazine that got us all started uh, on this topic. Uh, she's an assistant professor of religious studies at Stanford in collaboration with the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. Uh, please don't make me say that title again. That was very long. Uh, she organizes Stanford's uh, American Religions Workshop. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Catherine Jin Lum, there's a lot of places to start, but I'd like to sort of start right here in the present uh, and just uh, talk about a 2013 Harris poll that found that uh, 74% of U.S. adults believe in God, 68 heaven, only 58 hell, uh, and mm -hmm. that's down four points. Hell's uh, numbers are going in the wrong direction uh, from 2005. <laughs> on the other hand, 58% is a lot, right? I mean, yes. I, I was a little surprised to find out that still, you know, a comfortable majority of Americans take hell fairly seriously. And, and I'm assuming, I mean, that's sort of an interesting American trait. I, I just don't think you get the same numbers in Europe. Absolutely. First of all, I think it's, well, thanks for having me on the show, but I think it's um, great that you went out on the street and talked to people to find out what they believed about hell. And, you know, writing a book about hell, I've gotten a lot of interesting contemporary reactions to it as well. Um, that cover the same kind of range of responses that you got out on the street. Mm. But, yeah, I was I was quite surprised by the poll numbers as well. And, you know, they're always just up and down. So 58% is a majority. I've seen numbers, I think, 71% in 2004. It depends on what kinds of polls you're looking at. Um, in general, you see that belief in hell is about 10 percentage points below heaven. Uh, belief in the devil is also about 10 percentage points below belief in God. Um, but... You know, I think you had one, one lady on the street say that there has to be a counterpart to heaven. There has to be a hell as the opposite to heaven. 
And that's something that you see hold, um, hold true throughout, uh, the kinds of research that I did in America, that people believe that if there's a heaven, there must be a hell. Although that's, uh, as a matter of total religious studies, not necessarily the case. In other words, there are religions that get by perfectly well without a hell. Right, right. But America has been traditionally dominated by a certain kind of Protestantism. And so I think this is why you see the poll numbers the way that they are. All right, so let's talk about somebody, and we're going to go back in the past and kind of talk about how we got to where we are, uh, But uh, and, and Megan Henning is going to join us in just a second. She's a professor of religious studies at the University of Dayton and the author of the forthcoming Educating Early Christians Through the Rhetoric of Hell. We're going to talk uh, about uh, how we got to hell, and also uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Dante uh, as well, because I just don't think we can have this conversation uh, without Dante. But um, I, I want to talk about the person who most recently kind of tested the waters of hell, and that's an evangelical yeah. minister named Rob Bell. And so if you think about it, I mean, the other part of this that makes it complicated right now, and towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about, I talked to a professor who was cited um, in, in, in your essay, uh, a professor who was working in, in a community college with millennials and finding out more mm-hmm. about how, but it will come to that. But whether we're millennials or not, we live in an incredibly diverse society, and, and if you walk down your street, uh, there are Muslims, uh, there are Jews, uh, there are Hindus, there are, I mean, in a reasonably divorced town in America, there's sort of a lot of people who aren't going to heaven by the standard <laughs> reckoning of evangelical Christianity. And so the lovely, lovely man who, you know, works at the gas station and, and you buy your uh, your Slim Jims from or, or whatever, you know, he's just not a Christian and he's not going to heaven. So you wonder how long this that notion that the only possible way into heaven is by direct acceptance of Jesus Christ uh, as one's personal savior and as a divine entity, um, how long that can hold up against uh, just the incredible diversity of America where we know lots of people and it's kind of hard to believe that Gandhi is sitting down in hell roasting away. So mm-hmm. um, this guy, Rob Bell, I'll let you pick up the story. Explain what Rob Bell did. Yeah, so Rob Bell was an evangelical um, preacher of a megachurch, and uh, he had thousands of parishioners. And in, gosh, I think it was 2010 or 2011, he came out with a book called Love Wins. And in that book, he starts with just that anecdote that you um, described, saying, you know, I, I couldn't possibly believe that Gandhi would be rotting in hell, right? How could we how could we say that we're Christians who believe in the love of God and then accept that someone like Gandhi could be rotting in hell? Uh, and so the book goes on to question. It's really a book that, that questions things. It's not, it's, he doesn't come down firmly on one side or the other, but it, it goes on to question the standard evangelical hell that holds that uh, people who don't accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior are burning forever in the lake of fire and brimstone. Right. And so he um, offers different kinds of alternatives to that hell. For instance, the idea that um, hell might already begin on Earth. Right. There's so much suffering on Earth already that why can't this be uh, the beginnings of hell already, a separation from God? And the reaction to Rob Bell's book was um, fairly extreme. I mean, there was quite an outcry over the book. Uh, Evangelicals dismissed it. I think John Piper tweeted uh, at Rob Bell, farewell, Rob Bell. Right. And. Um, what what's surprising to me, actually, is that this outcry seemed to suggest that Rob Bell was the first person who was making these kinds of claims uh, in America. And he's hardly the first person to have made these kinds of claims. Um, I think in 2004, Carlton Pearson 
um, who also was the pastor of a megachurch in Oklahoma, I believe it was, um, was also dismissed as a heretic for making similar kinds of claims. Uh, I think there was actually a This American Life show about him called Heretics. It's um, fabulous, a fabulous listen. Um, and then in the 19th century, you have similar kinds of people making the same kinds of claims about how could there possibly be an eternal hell if there's a loving God. Uh, even in the 18th century, um, universalists uh, say, you know, if we're believing in this benevolent God, how can there be an eternal hell? And then they get attacked by uh, those on the other side. Actually, you could sort of almost talk about the history of heresy in the history of hell, or at least the notion of reward and punishment or redemption Definitely. versus punishment. Uh, they, they go in lockstep. So if you go back, let's go back one more century to antinomians. And you've got Anne Hutchinson and people like that saying, well, if God, God's grace is irresistible, if it really is irresistible in the strict Calvinist sense, then Absolutely. a real reprobate could actually go to heaven. You know, somebody right. who was a really terrible person <laughs> in terms of his outward <laughs> actions could wind right. up in heaven. And somebody who seemed outwardly somewhat virtuous might not be. And once again, right. every time you have an orthodoxy, it seems to me the the threat to the orthodoxy is that punishment versus redemption paradigm. If you monkey with it, you're really monkeying with the bones uh, of of the faith. Right, and it's also not just nowadays. So you mentioned earlier that how long can this kind of hell hold up because the country is becoming so much more religiously diverse. But even going back to the 18th century, the 17th century, these kinds of questions were arising already, too, because, you know, in Anne Hutchinson's day, the Puritans are encountering Native Americans, right? There's African Americans. Um, there's this new kind of spirit of exploration and this sense that, wait, the world has a whole lot of people in it, and a lot of these people don't believe what we believe. Does that mean that they're all damned, right? And so that kind of um, sentiment is already arising for, for centuries, and Yet hell has survived. And I'm also thinking, uh, and I want to bring Megan Henning into this uh, pretty quickly. Also, we've got a lot of interesting calls here. But I'm also thinking, just to think back to the Native Americans for a second, too. It it seems to me another place that hell becomes important is the more evangelistic the religion is, right? If you've got a whole Mm. group of people whom you see uh, a need to convert because, in fact, first of all, it's in the gospel. You're supposed to do this. And also, it just that's the way your particular faith in this particular moment are wired. They're wired towards evangelism. Well, you've got a great deal to offer them in heaven, but it gets, you know, even more urgent if you've got a really terrible deal to offer them in hell. Right. I think you're absolutely right on that. And I think actually a big a big change from the 19th century to now is that the urgency of that evangelism was all the more immediate, I guess, because death was more immediate in the 19th century. Right? This is an era before antibiotics. It's an era when you could die because you caught a cold. And so telling people that they might die tonight uh, and might end up in hell was a lot more scary than it is today when you know a lot of people believe, well, there's hospitals, there's a lot of things that can save me from dying right now. I have a lot more time to think about this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, before we go to Megan, I just want to grab uh, one call, maybe read a tweet or two. A lot of people are responding to this. Here's uh, Brett from Newington. Hi, Brett. Thank you very much for bringing up this topic. I, uh, it, it's an interesting topic. I, I tend to equate it toward I, – I make analogies all too often. And you know how there's MapQuest and, and Google Maps and, and Magellan and Garmin and well, yeah, we get you. Yep. Maps. Yep. Everyone, all these religions are like different mapping softwares or different, you know, and none of them are necessarily 100% accurate and up-to-date and have the only way to get to whatever destination is considered heaven. But they all claim Many, many, many ways to map your, 
your way to whatever the definition of heaven is for whichever, whatever. And, but there's heaven and hell right here on earth. And we got fire and brimstone in the Middle East and in Ukraine and everywhere. So this is another way um, that, that and in fact, this was, I think, in Pastor Bell's uh, Love Wins, uh, Catherine Jinlum, right? He, I mean, he's, he did, he raised that possibility that maybe hell's right here. Right, that hell might begin on earth. Carlton Pearson did the same thing, yeah. So uh, just before we go uh, to make it and kind of go back uh, back into the Wayback Machine, let's see. Uh, Susan Jane Bigelow tweets, I believe in heck, mostly. Stephen Wood tweets, even if only one, even if only 1% of people believed in such silliness, that would be a lot. 58% is just pathetic and maddening. Brendan Mahoney tweets, I believe in other people. That's a Sartre joke. Uh, although I think most people kind of misinterpret what Sartre means about it. It doesn't mean the most obvious thing when he says hell is other people, in my humble opinion. All right. So uh, let's add uh, another guide uh, to our trip uh, through history and through hell. With us is Megan Henning. She's a professor of religious studies at the University of Dayton and the author of the forthcoming book, Educating Early Christians Through the Rhetoric of Hell. And uh, so uh, Megan Henning and Catherine Jin Lums, uh, a lot of your writing is is on parallel tracks here. Uh, you're looking at a lot of the same things. But Megan, I'm going to have you sort of uh, kick, it, kick us off here. Catherine, at one point, really sort of talks about St. Augustine as the real author of, you know, the, <laughs> the, the most reliable early version of hell. But could we go back before St. Augustine? I mean, to what degree are the early, early Christians talking well, about hell? The, um, the earliest we have, um, and thank you, I'm delighted to join the conversation, could talk about hell all day. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, the earliest that we have is um, probably even in the Gospel of Matthew, um, the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, the discussion of the place where there is the burning and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, And that image gets picked up in the early Christian apocalypses, which Augustine is talking about when he describes his vision of hell. He's responding um, to some of his opponents who are reading texts like the Apocalypse of Peter. But Augustine is upset about these texts because he believes that those texts do not present a vision of hell that is stringent enough, because at the end of some of those apocalypses, there's actually a a prayer on behalf of the saint for mercy for the damned, and the damned are given a day of respite um, on Easter Sunday every year. And Augustine thinks that's atrocious. We can't give the damned a day of respite, because then no one will be afraid enough in order to behave properly in this life. Um, So he is a great source to go to because he demonstrates that early Christians are really interested in using this um, this rhetoric, this as rhetoric, and as a way to enforce particular behavioral behavioral norms um, in their communities. Jesus uses the word uh, Gehenna, right? And this mm-hmm. this is something that get, this gets debated around a lot now. What what exactly does he mean? Does he mean the same thing that Saint Augustine right. means, or does he mean something else? Does he mean some kind of death of the soul that that isn't quite as literally, you know? I mean, he talks about where the worm never dies and all this kind of stuff. Does he yeah. does he mean eternal punishment, or is he talking about something else? Well, I mean, we don't have a telepathic connection to the historical Jesus, so we don't, we can't be 100% sure. But what we do know is that he's using language that is um, part of his cultural milieu, and so he's using language that would have been common at the time. And and so we have to believe that it's not something that we can be sure he meant exactly what the people around him meant. But it, there's no reason to make light of the terminology and to try, I think when people try to explain away um, the words of Jesus, it's because we don't like, we don't want Jesus to be saying these things. We don't want to imagine a Jesus that uh, damned people to hell. But historically speaking, there's no reason why those words couldn't be 
fed by the historical Jesus, particularly if we imagine him as an apocalyptic teacher. Having said that, though, lots of people at the time, including the Greeks and Romans, used hell as rhetoric without believing it as in it as an actual place. So that leaves the question open. Right, exactly. But to paraphrase Freud, sometimes hell is just hell, Uh, and so maybe maybe that's what's going on with Jesus. Exactly to try and to try and say, well, he used the word Gehenna, and the gospel author used the word Gehenna, so maybe it means something different. Is to try and sort of wiggle out of our beloved Jesus saying something we don't like. And you know you can't wiggle out of hell. That's the whole idea. So Exactly. So Catherine Jin Lum, as you're hearing this, you also sort of trace the evolution of this. And uh, for for me, the untutored, untutored person, uh, you know, I see the early the earliest Christians, Jesus and his followers, his apostles, they're very apocalyptic. They think the world is going to end any second. So that kind of informs a lot of their thinking, which is sort of figure this out really fast. But as the centuries drift by, the world doesn't end immediately. And it seems as though... They they think a little bit about this, like, okay, so in terms of moral order and, like, you know, getting saved and not getting saved, how should we talk about this? And Catherine Jin Lum, it seems like they initially don't all talk about it with one voice. No, definitely not. So what I what I try to say in the article is that I see this kind of emergence of different layers of complexity in the afterlife. And I'm not by any means the, the scholar who's, you know, come up with these arguments. But you see in the beginning, um, you know, ancient Judaism ancient Greek religions, that there is kind of one undifferentiated afterlife, one shadowy realm. And then from that shadowy realm, you see the emergence of two different kinds of realms, right? A a realm of rewards and a realm of punishments to better reflect the ethical um, differences among people in the here and now. And so then when you get to the early Christian era, uh, which um, Megan Henning was discussing, right, hell becomes a very powerful tool of of pedagogical import to get people to believe certain things or to act in certain ways, especially if the world is going to immediately end. But since the world doesn't immediately end, there has to be this kind of thinking about what's going to happen uh, between death and the second judgment. And so the concept of purgatory arises in the years. I mean, Augustine is, is one of the, the fathers who comes up with uh, you know, what will become the key concepts of the doctrine of purgatory. Um, but the, the doctrine of purgatory offers yet more moral gradation, right? Between heaven and hell, there's now this kind of third option that if you're not good enough to go to heaven and you're not terrible enough to go to hell, you might go to this other place where your sins are purified and you might then end up ultimately in heaven. And the doctrine of purgatory kind of gets at some of the difficulties, the tensions in the concept of hell that arise from the early Christian tradition. And so yeah, let's uh, t- pause over purgatory. That's, but I just looking at the clock here. I, I, you know, um, Megan's right. We could talk about hell all day. <laughs> you know, yeah. The time is drifting by. There's so many things I want to talk about. But so Megan Henning, um, purgatory also is this kind of moving target in the sense that, OK, so maybe, as Catherine just said, it's this third option. But then, you know, for a, a while, it seems like, well, maybe most people are going to purgatory. Most people are not going to ascend immediately into heaven. And ideally, most people are not so horrible that they go immediately to hell. So maybe most people are going to go to purgatory and have their sins burned away over a fairly, you know, it's like just a Brazilian wax that never ends. <laughs> yes, I like that, the eternal Brazilian wax. The, the platonic um, vision of hell involves an idea where um, you're, you're actually purified by visiting hell and then can escape. So, and, and Plutarch has a similar idea. Christians, as they're developing this idea, are borrowing heavily from Greeks and Romans and their rhetorical orientation towards thinking about hell. 
and doing so, they also borrow from a cultural tradition that was very strong. And as Christians are trying to develop their own culture, this is a really strategic thing to do. But what we see is that early Christian visions of hell are as different as the authors that produce them. And so each instantiation of hell is just a little bit different from the last. There are different sins punished, there are different punishments, and then we also then will have someone throwing in this idea of mercy, this idea of purgatory. There are different levels. And what I think we see there is a kind of discomfort with whatever was said last being the last word on the subject, because it is frightening. But it also is that we that hell is itself a very malleable rhetorical tool, and it lends itself to this kind of creativity, which is, I think, what um, is so interesting about Catherine's work on the contemporary period is that this hell undergoes a makeover in each era, in a sense, in a way that fits the time for good or bad, then we're sort of mm-hmm. stuck with it. Well, yeah, no, I, it's still I, also striking how much remains the same. Mm-hmm. You know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, there's fire and brimstone, the lake of fire, scorpions, like this very literal kind of hell. No, yeah. but I, th- I think what, one thing that, that, that Megan's comment makes me think of, too, is it is also true that as the church builds up as a bureaucracy, you know, in its earlier stages, it, it, the whole thing becomes more bureaucratic, right? And, and instead of this, this very sort of dichotomous ones and zeros version of, of, of punishment or, or atonement or punishment and redemption, you start to have this pretty complicated system. Yeah, where well, with, and then sins mm-hmm. like sleeping in on Sunday show right. up in hell all of a sudden because now we have to start worrying about communal boundaries and, like you say, bureaucracy. The deacons who eat the offerings show up. There, there becomes a, a ticking of the boxes that gets very complicated. All right, we have to take a little break here. When we come back, we have tons of calls, and also um, I want uh, Megan to uh, walk us through Dante a little bit. Catherine Jin Lum is here with us uh, the whole distance, so we're in hell. Come join us, and we'll be back. Right. We're talking about notions of hell. This really could be a three or four hour show and I would be perfectly happy uh, even if other people weren't. Uh, Megan Henning is with us. She's a professor of religious studies at the University of Dayton. Her uh, forthcoming book is Educating Early Christians Through the Rhetoric of Hell. 
order it now for Christmas giving. And uh, Catherine Jin Lum is here with us. Uh, she's the author of the forthcoming Damned Nation, Hell in America from the Revolution to Reconstruction. Same advice uh, on that one. Uh, order it now for holiday gifts. Uh, nothing says I love you like a book about <laughs> hell. So um, you can use that as your slogans. All right. So <laughs> let me just grab a call or two. I, I really I really want to do get to, to Dante because I feel like uh, he, he deserves it. And because he is pretty much the... Uh, you know, the Lewis and Clark uh, of hell. Uh, all right, here's uh, Tom in East Haven. Hi, Tom. I found this an incredibly interesting topic, and I just would like to comment, um, being what I think you would consider an ultra-conservative Christian, I have a very concrete belief in a, uh, a supreme God. However, I think that the concept of hell really is a God-dishonoring concept that I really don't find harmonizes with anything that I see in the scriptures, unless things are taken out of context. And um, it seems that um, just on a practical level, if you if you look at Adam and Eve, and w- what would have happened to them, uh, their punishment for what what uh, the Bible says that they've brought on the human race was basically that they were going to go back to the material they were created from. And yet, all the way into the Book of Job, you can see that Satan still had access to heaven, if, if you believe it as I do. And so, you know, my, my comment and, and the answer that I would like is that all the way from Adam, uh, you know, for, throughout most of the Bible, where would those ind- individuals have gone to if Satan was still in heaven? So, and there are many other instances where the concept of a, an eternal torment in a fiery, burning place really just doesn't harmonize with the concept of a loving God. Well, Tom, for you bring up fascinating stuff, and my guess is that Catherine Jin Lum is more interested in interviewing you than she is in <laughs> answering your questions. But really what he's bringing up, to a certain degree anyway, I mean, setting aside Satan's access to heaven up to and including the story of Job, we're really talking once again about this question of atonement, right? Um, I'll, Catherine, I'll, I'll let you uh, start out on this one, but, but ultimately you have this Adamic notion of an Edenic fall, uh, and, and so you have this desire to, to get you know, sort of metaphorically get back to the garden. And so then you have this vision of, of how atonement might happen. It would happen through Jesus Christ. And so then mm-hmm. the health question for a while, it sort of becomes, but what if you don't do that, right? I mean, what if you don't accept the corrective course that's been offered to you? Or or, right, is, yeah, or think, is that not the issue? Thanks so much for, for that call. Um, I, I do definitely want to interview you. I'm I'm curious as to um, how you how you self-identify. I, th- I think you said you identify as a conservative Christian, and yet you have these these very fascinating uh, ideas about hell. And the ideas that you have about hell, I think, sound to me like two um, two alternatives that have been proposed by various various other people um, throughout the ages. One of them is this concept of annihilation, the idea that the wicked aren't actually, they're not going to suffer in hell eternally. I think the issue here is actually the etern- eternality of hell. Right, so the wicked are not going to suffer eternally. They're just going to be annihilated when they die. So a good God could not possibly punish people forever because that's out of proportion with the finite nature of their sins. Right, So this is one alternative to eternal hell. Another alternative to eternal hell that sounds a bit like what you're saying is um, this idea of conditional immortality, uh, the idea that only the good will become immortal. Right, So the bad won't actually... They'll just die. And when they die, they die. They won't get anything. They won't end up in eternal punishment. They won't end up in heaven. They're just dead. And so I I heard you saying that um, Adam and Eve returned to the earth, right? This idea that dust to dust, ashes to ashes, um, immortality is only the boon of, of the righteous. 
<laughs> we could do a whole show on Tom's call. It would be fascinating. But, but before I, I kind of run out of time for this, uh, Megan Henning, I do want to go back to you and talk about Dante. All right. So the, we're sort of running on parallel tracks here. The Dante and his Inferno, they're not canonical. But on the other hand, he is the guy more than anybody else, I think, who maps out kind of an enduring notion of what hell might be how it might be constituted. It turns out, once again, it's not a one or a zero. It's this incredibly reticulated, multi-layered thing. And maybe an idea that's meant to also play out in the real world, right? Dante's writing about the afterlife, but he's really writing to a certain degree about the world that he lives in and the way he sees crime and punishment, right or wrong. Absolutely. Um, and what Dante is doing, as you said, it's beautifully articulated. He, it's, if we can call something about eternal punishment beautiful, right? Um, he is describing the, the landscape in a way that is visually captivating. And he is doing so, he says in part, because he has read one of these early Christian tours of hell that I mentioned earlier, the Apocalypse of Paul, which is, in, as you mentioned, not canonical. Um, but so Dante admits that he's reading an ancient source. And he, he, of course, changes the vision, but as Catherine mentioned earlier, lots of things are strikingly similar over thousands of years of time now. We have a vision of hell that is involves fire and involves punishments that fit the crime, and these are concepts that are borrowed from at least before the second century before the Common Era. So we're talking about at least a thousand years of continuity in the concept of hell, and then even more like 2,000 years if we go to today. Uh, and so we have to ask ourselves, is Dante the key piece in mediating this vision of hell through this course of time because he's reading these ancient sources? And is it because he reads this vision and then sits down and writes this really beautiful work that has captivated audiences for hundreds of years that we now continue to bring these ideas forward to today? And do we do so outside of religious contexts as well? Um, do we invent criminal justice systems where the punishment has to fit the crime because we have this idea in our mind that that is what the definition of justice should be? I don't have the answers to those questions. Those are honest questions um, that I have myself, and I would be interested also to hear um, what Catherine has to say about why, you know, why millennials are starting to move away from this and if she thinks that the medieval vision of hell that Dante has was influential in any way for American Christians. Well, we're going to get to that in the final section, segment, the C segment of the show. We're going to talk about um, that whole millennial question. But, I mean, just to sort of come back to something that you're saying, Megan, I mean, Dante's vision of, of hell is... It, it, I think it does show up in the criminal code. I mean, maybe maybe it's an accidental coincidence, but it's certainly state of mind is really important to Dante, right? If mm-hmm. I kill you in a hockey fight, you right. know, that's really different than if I w- lie in wait for you uh, and plan your death over a period of weeks and lie to you and betray to yeah. you, betray you. I mean, it really it's really really different. Treachery is the absolute worst thing. So I can do the mm-hmm. same horrible act, but my state of mind really uh, determines how screwed I am when I get to hell. That's right. And we want, uh, there's a certain compulsion to, to want to believe that we can make these fine distinctions amongst human behavior and we can weigh these things on our own. Um, and I think Dante plays on that. But, you know, Catherine uh, Jin Lum, that seems to me to be kind of hard up against for the most part, I mean, maybe maybe you, you see this so much more uh, in so much more detail than I do. But certainly, 
post St. Augustine and getting, as we get towards Calvinism anyway, mm-hmm. as we get towards Calvinism, uh, we get toward, to the Reformation, you know, it, it really is a kind of either or toggle switch, right? Yeah. Either you're saved and preserved or you're not. There's basically sort of one big fat question that, that, that you know, that either gets answered yes or no. It's really not, I mean, theologically anyway, it's not Dante's uh, question like, no. you know, what did you do and how bad was it and how sneaky were you about it? All that kind of stuff just goes out the window, right? Right, right. Well, it gets back to this question of the atonement, right? So for the Calvinists and the Reformers, they reject the concept of purgatory. They, re- they reject the idea that you can do anything to make penance for your sins um, after your death. It's all about Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so um, belief becomes more important than kind of behavior and this kind of calculation of behavior and what what kinds of punishments fit certain kinds of behaviors. That's no longer as important as the central question of did you have the change of heart? Did you accept Christ as your savior? Um, if you did, yes, you're in heaven. If you didn't, no, you're bound for hell. All right. We're going to have to, <laughs> every time we come to one of these things and I say, we're going to have to take a break. It just feels so final. You know? <laughs> like we shouldn't stop now. We need to talk more about this. Megan Henning, I'm going to have to put you on hold. I know you want to hear a little bit more about the millennial thing just to free up the line so that um, our next guest can uh, come on here. Uh, you've been fantastic, though, and I really would love to do I, we'll, we'll have to figure out. Maybe we can get like a syndicated weekly hell show or something that we can all be That's on together. Great. All right. So um, let me do that. Uh, I'm going to put uh, Megan on hold. We have a new guest coming aboard here. We'll try to take some calls as well. Time is finite. I'll shut up. We'll go to break. First room is hard to a walking tour for the fifth circle of hell and I just want to say that the punishment for taking up two parking spaces with your car is much worse than I would have guessed. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich, Brittany Hill, and Katie Pikus. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Comcast. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff explaining to Satan why they never replaced the toilet paper roll, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now, back to Colin. All right, we are back. We're talking about hell. This has been just amazing stuff uh, so far. I'm talking to, like, these really intelligent women about hell. I can't tell whether I'm doing a show or I'm on the best date ever. You know, before we bring on um, the Reverend Candace uh, Shellu, Catherine Jin Lum, you actually do cite her work um, in in your essay, and I assume probably also in your book as well. But um, before we get to that, there is sort of a question. You know, we began this conversation talking about the Harris poll where, you know, 58% of people still believed in hell, but hell was four points down. And there's Mm -hmm. probably no simple explanation for that. But you do start to wonder, is this just sort of a, a theological concept that's grandfathered in, so to speak, and has no real relevance to, 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 to today? Is, is it at war with something other than the kind of multicultural world that we live in? Yeah, well, people are always calling for hell's demise or saying that hell is on the outs, and it, it hasn't disappeared yet. And I think, you know, we are in this kind of multicultural era, but at the same time, we're also in this era of um, kind of stark contrast, too. And, you know, if you think back to the years following 9-11 and the kinds of rhetoric that came up around um, the U.S. versus, you know, 
um, Osama bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera, uh, there still is this kind of stark either or in the American mindset. And um, I think you can really see that emerge on the death of Osama bin Laden, right? So there were crowds that were shouting OBL, rot in hell, outside the White House, I believe. Uh, so this idea that there has to be a hell for kind of our enemies or for the worst of the worst, this is an idea that has been very persistent, right? Where else do you put an Osama bin Laden? Where else do you put a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao? Right, unless that person's soul is just annihilated and doesn't go anywhere, as we were talking about before. Right. Well, the Reverend uh, Candace Shalou Hodge, I hope, am I saying your name right? Uh, it's Shalou, yeah. It's, it's close. All right. I noticed it does have the consecutive letters of hell in it, but I don't think that's it does. significant. Uh, she's the founder and editor of Whosoever, an online mag- magazine for uh, GLBT Christians, and is the pastor of the Jubilee Circle in Columbia, South Carolina. She's also the author of Bulletproof Faith, a spiritual survival guide for gay and lesbian Christians. She teaches comparative religion at Midlands Technical College in Columbia, South Carolina. In that capacity, uh, I think she has had young people, millennials, so to speak, uh, embark upon the thought experiment, which is the subject of our conversation now. What you ask them to do, as I understand it, is uh, invent from scratch a religion, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and it seems as though when it comes time to build the hell or not build the hell, it doesn't even really seem to occur to them to build the hell. No, it, it became clear to me a couple of semesters in um, asking these students to build a religion, and I gave them parameters. They, all, they had to include things such as rituals, sacred symbols, myths and doctrines, social values, founders, even reformers. I mean, they had to have all of these parts and pieces, but I never, you know, I mean, beliefs, you know, eternity, hell, eternal life, these things fall under beliefs and doctrines, but not, I mean, too to a person, to a group, none of them included any sort of idea of hell, and few of them actually had any sort of idea of a heaven. What they most seemed interested in was the idea of reincarnation. You know, um, I'm going to come back to that, uh, to to this in a second, and and ask you some specific things about these students, but um, just to um, switch back to you for just a second, uh, Catherine Jin Lum, one thing these students didn't have to do is take this religion out on the street and make it work. And, and to, to a certain degree, right, there's a structural function of hell. We talked about it before. If you're evangelizing, if you're in Africa or talking to Algonquins in the 1600s or whatever, it really helps to say there's this really horrible place that you go if you don't do what we tell you to do in order to preserve order in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Once again, mm-hmm. very useful to say, you know, if things don't work out for you at the irresistible grace level, you're really screwed, you're going to hell. So this is one thing the students didn't have to do, and you wonder whether that influenced their thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm I'm so excited about this this class and this assignment that you gave your students, uh, Candice. I'd love to talk to you at some point about it as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think I think you're definitely right. I mean, there's this evangelistic aspect to hell, and there's also this um, behave the way that I want you to behave aspect to it too. And so. You know, in the 19th century, for instance, hell is a very good tool to get people to stop drinking um, from this temperance movement. Uh, it's also very important in the slavery controversy on both sides, actually. You know, people arguing that um, you're going to go to hell if you have slaves or you're going to go to hell if you don't because you're not following the Bible literally. So I wonder if, if students nowadays just are not really thinking about getting people to do things that they want them to do. Yeah, what you're thinking about that, Candace? I mean, let's say they had to sort of actually market this thing and make it uh, viable. Well, and that was that was the, another thing that I found very interesting, that every single one of these religions, to a religion, none of them were evangelistic. 
Because I asked them, I said, well, so what happens then if you have no hell, uh, which they said was too judgmental and they don't want to, you know, they don't feel like they have the power to send people to hell <laughs> with their religion. And so, so they thought, well, if you don't like our religion, go find another one. You know, it was like, you know, if this one, if this suit doesn't fit, there's another store down the down the street. You can go and shop there. Uh, so, so there was absolutely no no urge to evangelize. There was no urge to get out and 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 convert people. And and most of the, I was interested too that most of the rituals, most of the ideas that they came up with, were incredibly individualistic. Um, community life was almost non-existent. Um, when the when the communities gathered, it was either informally or they gathered once a month, once a year, um, you know, for for some sort of ritual. Um, and I mean, and the religions themselves, you know, some of them took it seriously and really tried to do what we, what might work as a religion if you took it out in the world. Um, others others created religion out of shopping. Others created religion out of football. <laughs> Uh, others created religion out of capitalism, you know. I mean, the things that we already put religious parameters around anyway because we have beliefs and rituals and myths and, and doctrines and well, that sort of thing. Let me ask you a really horrible question, which will further infuriate all the millennials that I've infuriated <laughs> over the years, all right? So they don't put hell into their religions, so there's no punishment in these religions. And I don't, I, I'm just saying this theoretically. I don't really mean this. But, okay, so let's think about millennials for a second, who they are. Well, a lot of them have had kind of helicopter parents. A lot of their parents have been driving around with bumper stickers saying my child was student of the month or student of the week or something like that. They've been given trophies for just for participating in things as opposed to actually, you know, being the MVP or something like that. So is it, is there, is it possible that one reason that they don't believe in hell is that they really have been sheltered from the downside of everything. Well, and, and I think that, that you may be on to something a little bit there because it's not even so much the, the fact that they dropped hell completely that bothered me. It was, the, what, it was what they did or did not do about human suffering. So, so take the religion, for example, that uh, grew up around shopping. They really had no answer for me when I asked them about their social values and their ethics as to whether or not they thought workers should have fair wages. You know, th- does your religion advocate for unions? Um, does your religion advocate against child slavery um, you know, and, and, and child work laws? And they had no answer for that because you know, stuff arrives in stores. They hadn't really thought where the stuff comes from. And so to me, it just pointed out a, a shallower understanding of how the world works. So you may be on to something there. Well, I mean, just to go back, we need, need, we need to sort of ram this uh, conversation out and land this uh, plane on some airstrip somewhere. But, I mean, Catherine Jin Lum, as I listen to all of this and I listen to what Candace is saying, too, I mean, it really becomes clear that, at least correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that hell has kind of had two different functions. One of them is the most recent one you talked about. There's got to be some place where you put Osama bin Laden and Hitler and Stalin and all these people and make them pay, you know, for what they did 
during life. And the other function of hell is it's where everybody goes who doesn't believe what you believe, which is a really different thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, the, 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 the thing that, that Reverend Bell, who we talked about, the Love Wins guy, is talking about is uh, a system of hell that basically says if you don't accept Jesus as your personal savior, it might not even be your fault. You know, you, you were just raised in a different tradition, and, mm-hmm. and maybe you were in a tradition that lied to you really effectively, you know, uh, and you just didn't get it. It doesn't make any difference. You're going to hell. To me, those are really two radically different visions of what hell is. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think there is there is actually a kind of, I don't know if I would call it a third conception of hell, but there is a conception of hell among millennials today, too, that, that goes back to some of the things that we were talking about with Dante. It's not just about belief. It is, again, still about behavior. So um, Candice uh, Shalou, is that correct? Yeah. I think yeah. you, you teach in the South. Is that right? Yeah, and so in the South, there's a, a this phenomenon known as the Hell House. I don't know if um, you're okay. familiar with this, or if yeah, if your okay. your listeners are familiar with this, it's like a haunted house that's basically modeled after Hell that a lot of evangelical churches will put on around Halloween time. And so, you know, we talk a lot about millennials turning away from Hell, but there are a lot of millennials who are um, very much committed to Hell as well, and they they put on these Hell houses, they act in them, they um, have different chambers of hell, essentially, where they're targeting different kinds of behaviors like abortion or um, drinking or, or going to a rave or something like this. And uh, and they demonstrate the consequences of these kinds of behaviors. So yeah, so there is this, this kind of hell still that is trying to tell people what to do and what not to do, not just what to believe and what not to believe. And so that's sort of the normative function of hell. You know, I think that you're right. That is a, there's a third point to be made, just in the sense that, that uh, Kai Erickson talks in Wayward Puritans about that kind of notion that um, religious belief sometimes also needs to enforce normative structures. We can't have people running around, going to raves and having abortions and, and doing all this stuff. So they need to believe in hell. That is, I would give you that one as the third uh, option on hell. We have to stop. I wish we didn't. I, all of you are so fascinating. My apologies to callers who didn't get on the air. There was just so much ground to cover. If you want to email me uh, and use uh, all kinds of judgment mental language, be free, feel free at Colin, C-O-L-A-I-N. I can't spell my name. I'm so excited. C-O-L-I-N at WNVR.org. Thanks so much to uh, Catherine Jin Lum for being my Virgil through the underworld. I'm Kion Wolf from Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. So I am going. Kion, you're on a treadmill. And I look fabulous. 